Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit core.org. We hope you enjoy this message. As we continue in worship, I invite you now to hear these words from scripture. Our first passage today is from Genesis. The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat from it and don't touch it or you will die. The snake said to the woman, you won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. In Matthew's gospel, we read, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And finally, in James 1, we hear these words. No one who is tested should say, God is tempting me. This is because God is not tempted by any form of evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Everyone is tempted by their own cravings. They are lured away and enticed by them. Once those cravings conceive, they give birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it gives birth to death. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of scripture. Americans spent over $145 billion on technology this Christmas. We spend an average of four hours a day on our screens. We look at our smartphones an average of 58 times each day. More than 70% of us use social media. Technology touches every aspect of our lives. It holds the promise of enormous good. But misused, it can cause untold pain, leaving us feeling isolated, anxious, depressed, or addicted. It's been said that technology makes a tremendous servant, but a terrible master. This month, we're exploring how we can avoid the perils and unleash the promise of technology in our lives, our families, and our communities. I gotta tell you a story about a guy named Sean Woods. Sean has his own internet channel on YouTube and it's called Mousetrap Mondays. And the guy shows every Monday, he releases a video or, or many Mondays, he releases a video of the latest mousetrap he's discovered. So uh, he has a collection of 2,000 mousetraps. He's, he's got antique mousetraps. He's got modern contraptions. He's got things that are, you know, that are one of a kind, things that people have invented in their homes. He's even invented a few. And, uh, and he comes on and he shows these mousetraps and how you put them together. They're almost all very cheap. And then he sets them up in his barn with a motion sensor camera that during the middle of the night will come on when it senses mice moving around. And, and it's just fun to watch. And, and so I was watching one this week and in it, he has four different mousetraps that are his favorite mousetraps. And he sets them up over a, a fish tank and, and he doesn't kill the mice. He actually re-releases them. So he's got, you know, he's got fodder for his next mousetrap video. But I thought you might enjoy seeing him. Uh, he displays his four favorite mousetraps, what he thinks are the most effective. And then he tests to see which one catches more mice. He catches 74 mice over a couple of days. And, uh, and there, here are the four. I want you to imagine which one was the winning mousetrap. Take a look. 
Right. So that's just a little bit of the video. And, uh, and by the time you're done, you have a chance to see which one is the best mousetrap. And I'm wondering which one do you think was the best mousetrap? And I'll just show them to you on the screen here. And he moved them around. So every time he you know, did the test in another place, he changed the order of them. But, uh, but if you guess this one right here, the, he calls it the flip and slide. You were right. That was the one that caught, I think it caught 33 mice over a couple day period of time. Uh, the least uh, successful one caught six. And you might say, why in the world are you telling me about a mousetrap? And the reason why I'm telling you about it is because the way a mousetrap works, you know, mice are pretty smart little creatures and, uh, and they know when they're being tricked just a little bit. And so, you know, these mice will climb up there. And if you watch the entire video, you'd see that they're testing the waters. You know, they're trying to see if everything's, you know, uh, copacetic. And, 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 uh, and they can also smell the smell of peanut butter. That's what he usually uses, but sometimes he has, uses other things as bait. And in the end, however, what you see is they can't resist the temptation. They can sense that there's some danger there. They hang on to the edge of the bucket with their back you know, claws, and yet they can't resist trying to go for the peanut butter. And ultimately, they find themselves ensnared. And, uh, and while he releases them, most people who deploy these uh, traps actually intend to destroy these little mice. And that's going to help us think about what we're, you know, our subject for today. Today, we're going to talk about temptation and technology. We're gonna be looking to see how our technology, which is designed to be this amazing tool and it can be used for great good in each one of the sermons. We're not bashing technology. We're looking at, hey, this can be you know, used for really great purposes. And at the same time, there's always a downside. There are, you know, there are the possibilities, but also the perils of technology. Today, we're gonna to talk about temptation. So it's interesting when we think about you know, the Sean Woods, in, in the Bible, we find the, the one who's building mousetraps and trying to build even better ones is the devil. And he's often called the tempt, not often, but several times called the tempter. So this is his task is to tempt us. And the goal is to, is to you know, take us off the right path and to lead us down the wrong path, which brings harm to other people, separates us from God and brings harm to ourselves. Now, some people look at the devil and they see him as a personification of the dark side that permeates you know, all of, you know, really all of the universe, there's darkness. You know? And in our world, that darkness, again, is leading us to the wrong path. And some would see the devil very literally. Either way, what we find is all of us know temptation. We all are regularly, and I would say daily, faced with the opportunity to do the thing we know we shouldn't do. And often we don't even realize we're being tempted, we're being tested. And by the way, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the word for tempted or temptation is the same word that's used for testing. And so every temptation is a, is a test. It's an opportunity for us to see, for God to see, for others to see, which way will we go? Will we, will we take the bait? or we're gonna walk in the right path that leads to life. So uh, at one point in the scriptures, we find the apostle Paul talking about, uh, and this is in Ephesians 6, 11, he talks about the wiles of the devil. Now that's, that's in the old King James, but what is a wile? W-I-L-E, wiles of the devil. And interestingly enough, the definition is simply a trick or stratagem intended to ensnare. That's his job, is intending to ensnare us, right? And, and so this points again to the perennial value uh, you know, volley back and forth between good and evil, the continual battle in our hearts and in our minds. And, and I've shared this with you before, but I always appreciate Alexander Solzhenitsyn's quote, where he says, the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. 
So each one of us has the potential to do great good and we have the potential to do evil, to, to bless or to harm. We have the possibility of living in the light or living in the darkness. And that's been true perennially. So this is who we are as human beings. We struggle with these two things. We are created in the image of God, designed to do what's good and right and holy and just and, and, and caring and kind. But we also know the potential of doing the opposite of all of those things. And so the question is, which path are we gonna take? And there's always these snares, these possibilities that lure us with the right kind of bait to do the things we shouldn't do. Everyone knows temptation, all of us. And so you go back through scripture, you find Abraham was tempted and Sarah was tempted to do the wrong thing instead of the right. Jacob was tempted and Esau was tempted. David was tempted and Solomon, the children of Israel. And Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels with the temptations, 40 days in the wilderness. And he's tempted by the devil who knows his, well, we won't say weaknesses, but he certainly knows those places where he's struggling. So he talks about turning, you know, stones into bread. Well, Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, Jesus is the king of kings and yet he comes as a humble servant and, and he tempts him with power and wealth and, and, and then a chance to bypass the crucifixion by doing miracles, you know, amazing things like jumping off the pinnacle of the temple and, and being able to be picked up by the, by the angels so everybody can see him do a magic trick. And he, and he you know, he's, he's saved and rescued and people seem to follow him as opposed to having to go the way of the cross. I mean, this is how the devil works with even Jesus. The apostle Paul describes in, in Romans chapter seven, his own inner struggle between good and evil. And you've heard these words before undoubtedly, but here it is, Romans seven. What I want to do, Paul says, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. This is the apostle Paul who writes half of our New Testament. And yet there's this struggle, this ongoing struggle. And one wonders, you know, what were Paul's struggles? What were the things he was tempted by? And we don't know. But we do know he experienced those kinds of temptations and at points, you know, cried out, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of sin and death? And then he comes back and this is the dominant theme of his ministry. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. And so as Christians, we're well aware of our own weaknesses, our own shortcomings, the places where we're tempted to do the thing that we're not supposed to do. And at the same time, this deep longing to follow Christ and to do the thing that we're supposed to do. And one path leads to perhaps immediate gratification followed by pain or alienation from God or shame or guilt or, well, the consequences are profound in a whole variety of ways, depending on what we're tempted to and what we give into. Now, there was a, a man who was a Christian monk in the 300s. His name was Evagrius Ponticus. And Evagrius was known for developing a list of what he initially called the eight evil thoughts. So these were thoughts that he wrestled with. He's living in the, you know, in the desert in Egypt and he's, he's contemplating the spiritual life and what he's seen in other human beings and what he finds in himself. He's contemplating this and he, and he thinks about there are eight things that lead us to you know, the wrong path. They're the temptations that draw us out. They were sometimes called the eight terrible temptations. And later on, those were shifted to from eight to seven and that list was modified again. That was in the, by Gregory the Great. And then finally, in the time of Thomas Aquinas, they were, they were changed just a little bit more, still seven. And then finally, they became a standardized list of seven. I want to remind you what these seven now called deadly sins were and are. So these are the sins, of course, that all of our other sins are built, upon, built on top of. These are like foundational sins. And at least for me, they point to the temptations that we all wrestle with in one form or another. And here they are. You can say them with me out loud if you want to. Lust gluttony, greed, 
sloth or indifference, envy, anger or irritation, and pride. And I want you to notice the order that those are in, if you'll leave them on the screen for a moment, the order that those are in are from least to the greatest, the the least deadly to the most deadly. And so we find lust is the least deadly and yet still a deadly sin. And we find pride is the most deadly of those sins. I preached an entire sermon series on the seven deadly sins several years ago. And as we were talking about pride, the metaphor of the boars that bore holes into the ash trees uh, seemed like a good one. And, and actually you find these kind of beetles and other insects on all kinds of different trees, of, you know, really perfectly designed to live in that tree. And they bore their way in and then they destroy the tree from the inside out. It seemed like a good metaphor for what happens when it comes to pride. And so what you see in this picture is a beautiful beetle. It's the green uh, or the emerald beetle, the emerald ash bore beetle. And, uh, and then what you see next to that is the holes that it bores as it's coming out from the inside of the tree. So it digs its way into the tree, then it comes back out of the tree. And then you see the larvae that, uh, that are eating their way through the heart of the tree. So, and, and the most dangerous here uh, is of course what it does around the outside edge of the tree. So it's, it's eating away the lifeline or the arteries of that tree around the bark. And then you see a dead stand of ash trees and uh, we've had those in our own yard where we've lost these trees, these beetles, and you can find entire forests where there are ash groves that are destroyed by this one little insect. It's a beautiful little insect, and it knows how to bore its way in and how to eat it, you know, eat the tree from the inside out, and ultimately the tree dies. And that's how pride works in our lives. You know, it sort of eats its way in, and we don't even notice it. We don't even realize what's going on, and then we find ourselves giving in to pride, and then ultimately pride, like the other deadly sins, if you give in to them, you find yourself alienated, ashamed, you find yourself guilty, you find yourself uh, separated from friends and family and God, and ultimately it leads to death. Now that takes me to the Bible's opening story. So the Bible begins with creation in Genesis chapter one through chapter two, verse four. And in all of that, what we find is God, God speaks everything into existence and it's beautiful and lovely. And every day God looks at what God has made and he said, it is good. And when he finished creating human beings and everything else, he says, it is very good. But then you get into chapter two, beginning with verse 4b and going on through chapter three, and you find that human beings were very good and yet they struggled with their humanity. We were created in the image of God with the capacity to make decisions, the capacity to reason and think and love. And and yet at the same time, our capacity to deal with the ability to have freedom uh, hasn't survived very well in the human race. We've struggled so that we, again, have this perennial struggle between good and evil. And, And that's what we find in Genesis chapter two and three. So Adam and Eve, we find in chapter, uh, chapter two, God tells Adam, he places the man in paradise and he creates the woman and he tells the man, now listen, you can eat anything you want in this garden. It's just beautiful and it's all for you. I made it as a gift for you and you can have it all except for one tree and that one tree is mine. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you see, if you eat from it, it's gonna be bad for you. It's gonna harm you. You can't handle having the knowledge of good and evil. And so I'm gonna ask you, don't eat that tree, that from that tree, but you can eat anything else. And Eve comes along and he tells Eve the same thing. And, and then as you remember, the story goes, uh, they you know, come close to that tree. Like, okay, we're not supposed to eat from this tree. And instead of saying, let's just stay as far away as we can from that tree, they do what you would do and what I would do. And that is, I just wanna go check it out. I'm not gonna eat the fruit. I just wanna go see it. I just wanna get a little closer to the tree. Can I smell anything on that tree? Well, well look at the leaves, aren't they beautiful? And, and then, pretty soon they hear the serpent whispering. And there's this talking snake. And as the talking snake begins to speak to them, the talking snake tries to rationalize with them. And he's the tempter. And his job is to lure them a little closer to the tree. It's already part of their human nature. They struggle with this, you know, this created in the image of God. And, and so they find themselves drawn to at least know, to just see and touch, you know, this thing they're not supposed to have. 
And the closer they get, the serpent's whisper gets a little louder in their ears. And he says, did God really tell you that you shouldn't eat from this tree? Well, the thing is, God doesn't want you to have the best stuff. He doesn't want you, he's reserving this really good stuff for himself. And he doesn't want you to become like him because if you eat from this tree, you're gonna be like God. And, and God surely doesn't want that for you. But if you have this fruit, it's gonna, it's gonna help you be just like God. And, and so there's this whisper. And did he say that you would die if you, you know, if you ate from this tree? No, he didn't really mean that. That was just a metaphor. It wasn't really what he meant that you would die if you ate from the fruit from this tree. And, and so Eve touches the fruit, and then eventually she takes the bite, right? And as she takes the bite, she convinces Adam, hey, this is really great fruit. It's better than all the other fruit everywhere else. You gotta have some of this. And, and Adam takes the fruit. And you remember what happens next? They've been naked and they didn't really realize they were naked. Like there was nothing shameful about their bodies, but suddenly they realize they're naked and they go to sew clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. And, and then they realize they're afraid and they're ashamed and they feel separated from God. And God comes and whispers their names and they're hiding as though they could hide from the God of the universe. And, and God says, you know, where are you, Adam? Do you not think I know what's happened? And then God says, you're not gonna get to live here anymore in paradise. You have to go. You can't stay here anymore. And they're expelled from paradise. Of course, we see God's grace. He doesn't actually kill them. He lets them live. And, and then he makes clothing for them right? Knowing that they didn't used to need clothing, but now they do. And so God makes clothing for them. And, and so we see God's grace in that. And at the same time, we see what happens when we turn away from God's path. And this story, as I've shared many times, you know, you, you can read it literally. You can read it like a journalist was writing down the story from, you know, whatever you know, epoch of human history or of the world's history this uh, story appears in. Or you might look at it and go, this story isn't really meant to tell us history. It's meant to teach us about the evening news and to tell us about ourselves. And the serpent that whispers, we have heard his whisper throughout our lives in those moments when we've been tempted and tested to go do the thing that we're not supposed to do. And so many times we've succumbed and we understand what it feels like to be cast out of paradise because the really good path that God had intended for us, we're never gonna be able to go on because the thing that we took, you know, a wrong turn, that because the times that we, we violated what God intended for our lives. And so we've all known what, it, what it's like to be expelled from paradise, a great relationship that was lost because of what we had done or, or a job or, 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 or just a sense of who we are as human beings. I mean, we experience this brokenness in our own lives. Genesis chapter two, verse five B through chapter three is our story, not just a story of two ancient people. Well, temptation is normal. And if you are not tempted, you're not alive. I'm telling you, you better take your pulse and make sure that you're still breathing if you're never tempted. We're all tempted. And I see that from the time where children, now children don't know the difference between good and evil when they're born, but we certainly see them doing things that, that indicate that they have no care about whether it's two in the morning and you're really tired when they start crying to have their diaper changed or food. And, and then we watch them as they're going into preschool. And I had one of those kids who would bite children, you know, in preschool or would, or would take things, say mine. And, and, uh, and so we find something already before they fully understand that there even is a God, we find them, you know, wrestling with their humanity as their little children. And then as we grow up, we find the temptations grow stronger and more powerful in our lives. And so temptation is a part of life. And I think about times I've been in nursing homes and uh, in nursing homes with people who, you know, who are, you know, uh, just really, you know, their, their, their memory is, you know, largely gone or whatever else. And, and you'll find people who are saints in there and it doesn't matter whether they have a memory, you know, they have dementia or not, they're still living lives of love towards other people. But you can find other folks who are constantly, you know, demeaning the people who are around them. And so it doesn't matter what age you are, we still struggle with this part of our human condition. We struggle with sin or brokenness. 
And, and so when that happens, of course, what we find in our own lives is shame or guilt or blame we start to place on other people. All right, I, I, was, uh, I interviewed a couple of weeks ago because uh, we're gonna get to technology, but we're starting with the groundwork of this is just who we are. This is the human condition. And this is how reality works. There's the temptation to do evil, but there's also at the same time an impulse to do what's good. And we have to decide which of those two paths we're gonna take. But I was talking to a group of our teenagers a couple of weeks ago and interviewed them. You heard part of the interview uh, two weeks ago, but I was asking them uh, to talk about the ways that, that technology and social media, particularly is what they're using, uh, that social media might lead them down the wrong path and, and how it begins to you know, impact our, our brains and our thoughts. And, and what strikes me is that, our, that our, our devices, our phones or our tablets or our computers are in some ways the best mousetrap that could ever have been built. And what it does is it brings right into our homes. Again, we, many of us sleep with these devices. We, we have them with us 24 hours a day. We're, you know, and, and as we turn them on, what we find is, of course, great potential to do wonderful good but we also find the temptations are right there. They just so easily come to us and we don't even realize it at first what's happening. So, so I began asking the kids about, you know, what, you know, what are the places where you find yourself struggling with technology where it begins to suck life out of you instead of giving life to you? And I want you to hear, uh, I want you to hear one of their responses. And in this response, I want you to listen for the seven deadly sins. And I think you'll hear at least two or three of them in this response. Take a listen. Our society has a huge epidemic of the fear of missing out on things. And so technology just feeds into that because someone else is posting their perfect life, their perfect trip, their perfect gift, and you're just constantly watching them act perfect. And how does that leave you all feeling when you see that? You all agree that this happens, right? Yeah. So how do, how do you feel when you see those perfect everythings? It just makes me feel like, you know, or it makes me feel like I should be involved in that too. And then when I'm not, it can just leave me in a very depressed state. Yeah, I mean, I think social media is definitely just a highlight reel of your life. So when you're comparing everything that you know is going on in your life, like all your struggles to everyone else's, like the highs of their life, it's gonna make you feel bad. I think for me, there's definitely a connection there just by seeing everyone's perfect life and then just the act of comparison between your life to other people's lives. I think that can drive a person crazy. I feel like it makes you feel anger because like you're seeing stuff uh, like sometimes people like it makes it feel, look like they're having like the time of their lives the whole like all the time when like in reality they're not really doing like having that much fun and it makes you feel like I wish I could be doing like the stuff they're doing. You know, it's not just teenagers who have these experiences. I was speaking with a woman this week who's, I think she's 70 maybe, and her husband had uh, been critically injured, uh, survived and is doing great now, but had been seriously injured in an accident. And she said during that time, she wasn't sure if he was gonna survive or not. And she'd never thought about this before, but she was looking at social media and she would see the pictures of people with their families and their spouses and the trips they were taking in retirement. And all of a sudden she thought, I may never get to take those trips. I may never have a chance to have those experiences with my life partner. And it created the same feelings of the fear of missing out and, and of sadness and, and depression when she was seeing all of the joyful things other people were doing. I love what uh, one of the kids said in this, one of the teenagers said in this, and that was that, that um, they know that these are the highlight reels. So with your head, you know that what you're seeing, nobody's taking pictures when their hair looks bad. Nobody's taking pictures of video, you know, when, when uh, things are not going well in their life or when they've just got an F on a test or anything else. What you're seeing is all of the beautiful highlights and we create these kind of reels. Like we present ourselves in these ways. Now, part of it's just fun to be able to share, hey, here's some cool thing that happened in my life. 
And so it's, it's not that that's a sin to do that, but sometimes the things that we show are designed to cover up for our insecurities or our failings or shortcomings. And, and so we end up painting a picture of what our lives are like that really aren't so. Anyways, I was thinking about the deadly sins. I was thinking in what I heard them say, you know, there was envy and uh, there was, uh, there was uh, indifference or sloth. There was anger or irritation and even pride all show up somewhere in these exchanges when we're you know, intent upon portraying ourselves in one way or seeing what other people have that we don't have. It's a fine line between celebrating you know, what's going on in our lives and you know, trying to paint a picture that may not be entirely accurate or uh, in looking at other people's stories and forgetting that it's just the highlights and becoming despondent, depressed, angry, disappointed in life. I appreciated uh, Lucia's honesty about social media and Christmas. And she was, uh, she was describing what happened this last Christmas when she had opened up all of her presents. And then in the afternoon, she spent part of the afternoon just going through social media to see what all of her friends got for Christmas. And well, I'll let her tell, tell the story. Take a listen. I feel like it can lead us to feel greed a little bit because I feel like, like an example is like Christmas, like you open presents Christmas morning and then the rest of the day, I just like watch other people's Christmas hauls and see what everyone else got and stuff. So then it kind of makes me feel bad about my presents, even though I got like way more than I need. Yeah, so I don't know if you've ever experienced FOMO, the fear of missing out, but many of us have. And social media is just a great, you know, it just gives great fodder for that. And then suddenly inside of our hearts, instead of living lives of gratitude for what we have, we find ourselves disappointed for what we don't have or resentful for what we didn't get. One of our staff wrote me about another one of the seven deadly sins that she struggles with when it comes to technology. She said, I enjoyed last week's sermon on technology and I'm really looking forward to the series. One thing I have really struggled with is technology and it fueling my impulse for purchasing. The ads are especially targeted to me. You know that when you're watching, you're looking at Facebook or almost anything else, Google tees up the ads based upon things you've searched for or things that thinks somebody in your particular place in life might be interested in, which by the way, I keep getting these ads for hearing aids. I just don't understand that, but they keep you know, showing me hearing aids. I've never researched that, but I guess they know something about, uh, something about my age and stage in life. In any case, she said, the ads are especially targeted to me. I find myself often purchasing things I did not intend uh, because they are on a super sale. I could not miss the super sale. So I clicked to buy one thing today and then it flashed that it would give me a second at a discounted price. I'll need more later. So I chose that and then it prompted me to buy an item that goes with it. And I did that also. And my bill was double what I intended to spend and I know this is an area I really struggle with. I wonder if you struggle with this too. If you find that this is a lure to get you to spend money in ways that you shouldn't be spending it or, or it draws you in to be even more interested in things that you didn't know you thought, you didn't know you needed, you probably don't need, but suddenly you find yourself drawn to researching you know, this or that thing that you're eventually gonna buy. And, and it's just the perfect device. So I think about my iPad and it is a perfect device to constantly, when I turn it on, tell me I need more stuff. It is just fueling my materialism when I'm turning it on, if I'm not careful, because it knows exactly what's gonna to appeal to who I am. And so that's true with our phone, it's true with our computers. It's a continuous shopping device designed to enamor me and draw me into spending more and more and more for things that will not satisfy me. I wanted to share with you a part of my interview with Tracy Foster. She's one of the leaders and co-founders of Screen Summit. And by the way, Screen Summit is a, is a uh, program that's aimed at, it's, it's an organization aimed at helping parents and children have a better relationship with their technology. I think it's really, really important. And this Wednesday night, we're gonna be having Screen Summit. They're gonna host their, you know, we're gonna host their event here at the Leewood location at Church of the Resurrection. And it's also gonna be available online. 
I really want to plead with you. If you are a parent, if you are, uh, if you are a uh, grandparent, if you are a teenager, kid, we'd love to invite you to be a part of this and help, have, help each other have better relationships with technology. In any case, you're going to learn a lot of great tools. And, and uh, so join us this Wednesday night. Uh, go to court.org slash next to be able to find out more information there. But I wanted you to hear from my interview with her about where she sees younger children getting tripped up with technology. Take a listen. So while technology can do amazing things for our kids, and we're so grateful for that, it really is so much information, so much access, um, that unfortunately it can almost take what our most innate temptation or predisposition is and allow us to just go down that path. So different kids have different proclivities, but if you're likely to struggle with pornography, it is not just there for the taking, it is actually attacking you. It is coming at you. We've talked with teens who say multiple times a day they get DMs in their social media accounts from pornographic sites. That's really hard. If a kid's trying to stand guard and live in a purer way, but that's attacking them, that's really hard. Or if there are kids who are more inclined to feel insecure about their body image, they can go on to TikTok and start looking at fitness videos and soon be spiraled into videos that are encouraging disordered eating. So it's almost take your poison of what all of us have different areas of natural challenge um, and then layer on this type of access, and not just access, but those algorithms really do frequently pull us more in to those things, which just makes the fight of staying clear of it so much harder. Yeah, when, uh, when you think about elementary age children, what are the challenges when it comes to technology for elementary age kids? The average age that our kids are exposed to porn now, it's directly going down with the average age of when kids get a phone. And so it is really toxic for kids at that age to be seeing this type of content, especially because I just want to acknowledge as awkward as it may be, the type of exposure to pornography that we grew up with where you see a magazine or something like that, that would be considered quaint today. But kids are getting pulled into things that are so heavy, that are so violent, um, and it's really rewiring their brains and causing a lot of other side effects from it. The average age of, of first exposure to pornography today online is 12. Some as young as many, as young as nine, and there are some as young as four or five years old who are seeing these things. And so, as Tracy mentioned, when I was a kid, if you were interested in, you know, of course, what, well, I don't know very many boys who weren't interested when, uh, when they were sixth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, and really wanting to know more about what they learned in health class. And, uh, and, but, you know, you couldn't go buy this stuff. You couldn't see it, you couldn't find it. Maybe if your dad had some of this stuff hidden, you know, somewhere in the house, you might find it. But it wasn't like you had you know, ready access to it. It was a hard thing to find. And what you found in those days when I was a kid growing up was pretty innocuous. But today, if you have a device, if you have a uh, computer, a handheld device, a tablet, or a phone, you, if you figure out the right pathways, you can find access to seeing videos, moving pictures of stuff that you could never have imagined was out there. And what does it do in training a girl or a boy's understanding of sexuality and relationships when you're watching this kind of stuff? And there's a certain percentage of it that is non-consensual. There's just, there's just so much out there that is painful and harmful. And then we end up wiring our brains in a way, you know, we can't resist seeing it. And we end up wiring our brains, you know, in a way that makes the reality, you know, far less enticing than the stuff we see on our screens. And for many people, it becomes addictive. It becomes something they can't stop. And then ends up, you know, bringing pain to their relationships. And many married people, I've known a lot of folks in our congregation, who have struggled with this and found themselves in a place where they simply, the relationship they had ended up being increasingly broken because they were so addicted to what they were seeing on their screens. This is not God's will. This brings harm to us. And some of you remember, you know, when I was in 
well, it's been years ago now, but one of my uh, good friends found himself drawn into and then addicted to uh, pornography. And then it went from one kind of por pornography. What happens is desensitization. So what used to be exciting to him was no longer exciting. So he had to have more and he had to more, have more diverse and then more deeper, hardcore things. And then finally for him, it turned into illegal pornography. And one day the police showed up at his house, actually at his place of work. And he was let off in handcuffs while the TV cameras were all around and ended up in prison. I mean, this happens. It's happened with people at Church of the Resurrection. It's happened, it perhaps has happened with a friend of yours. And part of what I'm saying is that what promises excitement and, uh, and, and happiness or fulfillment of some kind ends up bringing about pain. Now, many of these things uh, to your, are to your soul, what, uh, what a bug zapper is to bugs. I was thinking about this this week and I was watching this little video uh, showing how a bug zapper works. And, uh, and I want you to just look at this and imagine what does this have to say to us about temptation and giving into temptation? Take a look. Oh, look at this. The dreaded purple light. These bugs can't resist it. Listen. <laughs> 4,000 volts of electricity that just, just sucks the life out of them and obliterates them in a moment. They can't not fly into the purple light, or at least most can't. And so you look at that, and sometimes that's what temptation feels like to us. Like we can't resist it. It's irresistible. We can't stop ourselves. We are destined to give into this thing over and over and over again. But that's not what the scriptures say. And it's not our human experience. We know it's possible to stop if we're willing. And so I think about uh, what James writes. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And Peter writes, your accuser, the devil, is on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. You can resist the devil, the wiles of the devil. And Paul teaches us about putting on the armor of God. And that includes prayer and the Holy Spirit and a host of other things, scripture. All of these things can help us. Being in worship helps us. As we're growing stronger in our faith, we have greater resistance to the wiles of the devil, the, the tricks and the temptations and the traps of the devil. Some years ago, I preached a series of sermons, which included the five R's of resisting temptation. And I wanna remind you what those are really briefly. The five R's, remember who you are. In my case, as the kids were growing up, remember I am Danielle and Rebecca's daddy. I wanna, I wanna honor them. I want, to, uh, I want them to be proud of their dad. I wanna stay in my relationship with my wife. I am going to resist temptation, right? I'm gonna try to be the person that, that they think I am. Uh, the second is recognize the consequences of your actions. So often we think that there's, you know, nobody will find out and it's, it's, it's a secret. But the thing is, so often people find out. And when they find out, we find ourselves humiliated or ashamed or broken or separated from God or, or relationships that fall apart because we forgot to think about the consequences of our sins or our actions if we give in. There are consequences. And for us to, instead of assuming the best, usually I say assume the best, here I say assume the worst as you're stepping into temptation. Uh, number three is rededicate yourself to God. And I love how Ellie, one of our young people, talked about her experience and something her mom and, uh, her, mom and her grandma taught her about what to do in the midst of temptation or just times where you're frustrated or feeling down. Take a listen. But this one is SNAP, SNAP. And it comes on, I don't know if you've ever heard of this analogy, um, at 8 a.m. And, and at 10 p.m. And, and it stands for start now and pray. I love that. And so I don't, I haven't done it in a while, but it just, it's a nice little snap, stop now and pray. Um, and I, I wanna say my mom or my grandma, like, I got it on an analogy class or something with the church, um, but it's just been helpful. I know I've used it like, you know, just stop now and pray. I love that. 
Remember that, write that down, snap, stop now and pray. And you can program your watch, you can program your phone to, uh, to send you a little reminder, snap, just put it on your calendar, snap every day at certain times. Or when you're facing temptation, remember that, snap, stop now and pray, enlist God's help in this. The fourth is reveal your struggle to a trusted friend. So when you tell somebody what you're going through or what you're wrestling with, it, it removes the power from it when you confess it to someone else and you find renewed strength and they can also help hold you accountable. So, so don't keep things secrets. It's the secretiveness that gives it power. And then finally, remove yourself from the situation. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He didn't mean that literally, but what he's saying is, you know, this path is gonna lead to such pain that step away from it. Get yourself away from the situation in which you can you know, you can find yourself harming yourself or other people. So remove yourself from the situation. That may mean, again, not sleeping with your devices, but putting them in the other room because a lot of the trouble we get into with our phones is after dark. When we're laying there in bed and we're looking at things, we're thinking about things that are there, what we want to buy, what we want to say, the zingers we're going to send to somebody else, the greed that we might be cultivating or lust and desire, all of these. So one other thing that's just a helpful reminder, if you happen to have an Apple computer, I was thinking about uh, the the emblem or the icon for, or the brand for Apple computer. Take a look, this is the back of the laptops. And you know, every computer they've ever made had this Apple on it. You notice that something unusual about this Apple, it has a bite taken out of it. And when I think about that, and I think about my phone has the Apple with the bite taken out of it, and my iPad has the Apple with the bite taken out of it, and all of these devices, it wasn't intended by Steve Jobs and Apple computer, but for me, when I look at them, I'm reminded that there is a temptation that Adam and Eve experienced to think about how desirable things were that they weren't supposed to have and to finally take the bite and to find themselves ashamed, broken, alienated from God and cast out of paradise. All right, I wanna encourage you that these devices can be used for good or evil. They can be used to help build other people up and bless them and encourage them. We're gonna talk about that in a couple of weeks. But they can also be used and to build us up, but they can also be used to trace a path or to walk down a path that ultimately brings pain, separation from God, guilt, and shame. Every time I open up my device, it is a temptation and a test. And the test is, will I walk with God or will I walk away? My hope and prayer is that today you will say, when I turn on my device, I wanna make sure I pass the test. I don't wanna take a bite of that apple and I'm gonna walk with Jesus in his path that leads to life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love for us, your grace and mercy. You know that every single person hearing this sermon, every one of us has succumbed to temptation. We have been caught in the mousetrap. We found ourselves in trouble, broken, ashamed. And what we found in you is forgiveness and grace. You want us to resist temptation. But just as you did with Adam and Eve when they ate the forbidden fruit and you showed grace and mercy to them, clothing them if they le as they left the garden, you show grace to us. Jesus, we recognize you came to save sinners and that's every single one of us. And you know the deepest struggles that we have in our lives. And we pray that you would help us, strengthen us, that we might walk in the way that leads to life. In your holy name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.